Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Shipshape Podcast. Today we explore the seldom discussed confluence of maritime life and mental health. Our guest, Emma Kate Ross, carries with her a rich legacy from a world of yachting and a deep commitment to mental well-being. Her initiative, Seize the Mind, founded in 2020, addresses the pressing need for mental health awareness and tools within the maritime community. My name is Georgia Tyndale and I am a freelance writer and editor based in Lancaster in the UK and I'm joined by Meryl. Meryl Charette, I'm a liveaboard on a Tashing Toshiba 36 in Boston, Massachusetts. So Emma, where are you coming to us from? I'm coming to you from London today. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I guess as we get into it, how did you get into the yawning industry to begin with? Oh, wow. Okay. So that was many years ago, 15 years plus, um, if I'm being honest, the usual kind of entry. I saw one of my friends doing it. She was back in the day, it was still sending photos by email. I think I had a Yahoo account. When we were getting the emails, I was just left university. I just completed my degree in psychology and all of these photos of sun-drenched islands, bikinis, people with Colgate smiles were coming into my inbox. And even in South Africa, where we have a lot of that, lots of gorgeous beaches, lots of kind of outdoor life, it just seems so impossibly exciting and thrilling, especially after doing a degree. So she helped me into the industry and I flew from Durban to Antibes via, yeah, a few little uh, incidents along the way, got myself onto my first boat in Panama City and that started a lifelong career and love of yachting. So when you graduated with a degree in psychology and you saw all these photos, did you think that getting into the yachting industry was going to be good for your mental health? I don't think I had any preconceived notions. It was so unspoken and rare then. You know, we didn't have below deck, we didn't have social media, we didn't have iPhones and smartphones you know, cameras in our pockets everywhere. So it seemed very exciting. And the concept of mental health or my mental health didn't even occur to me. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. It was exciting, different, unique. um, And that's what I was looking for at 23. And when you were first working on these super yachts, what was your role and kind of what did that look like? How long were you crew? So I started as stewardess. I probably did about five or seven years as stewardess. I started on motor yachts, um, kind of dipped my toes into that, met some amazing people, worked on some incredible boats, private and charter. And then like a lot of the stories, I uh, fell in love over an espresso martini in Antigua with a sailor and things progressed. We went into a long-term relationship. He asked me if I could sail. I lied and said yes. And then we were now working on a sailboat where he had just become captain. And that's when the yeah the real lessons started so i went into a a very intense 
from a long distance relationship to living together, eating together, breakfasting together, you know, how it goes and learning everything about being on deck and pretending to know a little bit more than I did and just trying to stay out of trouble, both professionally and personally. Yeah. What were the most challenging aspects that you can recall when you first jumped on board? I think it was a rude awakening. I'd waitressed and I'd been in front of house in restaurants in South Africa. I hadn't expected so much cleaning and the detail of cleaning was just, well, yeah, it's still to me a little bit mind numbing. The thought that you have to clean with toothpicks and, and cotton buds, it was just a wild new concept for me from someone who considered themselves pretty clean. So I found that element quite hard, the repetitiveness quite hard. Like I said, my first boat was in Panama City. We were still operating with call phones and phone cards. So not having connectivity or not having conversations with my friends and family, I found quite hard. I think the dream existed. And then when I stepped onto the boat, the first boat, the reality kind of punctured that dream very fast. Uh, I had an incredible chief stew who liked to give green crew a chance. So she was an amazing mentor, an incredible teacher, a really lovely chief stew. And then when it was time for me to move on, she helped me find my next boat. And that was another charter boat. And that sent me into a whole different hemisphere of yachting. And I absolutely love it. I think on my second boat is where I really found my kind of sea legs and my personality and and friends that I still have today. It was only after I had a little break in yachting that I retrained. Well, I didn't even retrain. I'm a kind of self-taught chef, but I thought maybe cruise chefing would be a much better fit for me. I enjoyed making food. I'd always been hosting dinner parties. I was that precocious 18-year-old having dinner parties with all her friends when everyone else was out getting drunk. And I got an opportunity on a boat when the chef went away to kind of uh, step up to the plate and become cruise chef. And I loved it. I love feeding people. I loved creating menus. I love putting down food that when it was good, I got that immediate gratification. And also I saw when the food was amazing, people stayed around the, the crew mess table a little bit longer. They would converse a bit more. And suddenly this love of food and conversation and crew mess and connection all kind of came yeah. together. And it's, yeah, it made sense yeah. for me. So for the uninitiated in um, crew food, I know a little bit about how the owners and guests are fed, but can you tell us a bit about how the crew are fed and in terms of how that would differ from what the owners might be eating, if at all? Because I've never really thought about that aspect of it, but nutrition is a massive part of, you know, well-being, isn't it? Certainly is for me. (laughs) And yeah, the crew need to be fed as well. It's not just all about the owners. I mean, it depends, you know, it depends whether you're in a yard on season, um, how much if you've got a dedicated crew chef or a sous chef that's assisting the head how chef. How common is that? How common is it to have a dedicated crew chef? It depends on the size of the boat. It also depends on the owners as well. Um, the last boat I was on, they had a they had three chefs in rotation and one of them would come to the boat. So actually, I would be crew chefing on the boat on my own for the majority of time and the head chef would come just to to serve the guests. So there's loads of different combinations. But in terms of crew food, you know, mostly crew will look after themselves for breakfast. Sometimes, especially after you've done a long passage, a bacon and egg roll goes a long way with uh, crew. Yes. (laughs) Sausage (laughs) rolls, all the the good stuff. But generally, crew look after themselves for breakfast. And then lunch is always family style, lots of buffets. I have a little bit of a reputation um, for making crew eat a rainbow a day. I have uh, a thought in my head that if you're eating, you know, those kind of dark leafy greens, those punchy kind of uh, reds and deep 
purples. If you get that throughout your day, I feel like you're getting the best of nature. So I try to make a lot of rainbow food, a lot of food that connects people and keeps people sitting around a table. And I'm really open to suggestions, having done it for so long. A lovely suggestion of someone saying, you know, my mom used to make this at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Can we have this is 100% appreciated. And then I'll try and honor it as best I can. So what inspired you to make the transition from a career in yachting to advocating for mental health in the marine industry? Um, well, I think, you know, over 15 years, I had seen a lot. I've kind of lived that full spectrum of human experience. I've had the incredible experiences sailing around the world with my partner and best friend, dolphins and phosphorescence coming out of jib, you know, sun salutations on the heli deck. All of that kind of side is amazing. But then having been on the in the industry so long, I've also experienced myself, anxiety and depression, bullying, harassment, and, you know, that kind of that clicky behavior on a boat that can be really upsetting and isolating. I've been involved in a few, a couple of man overboards and rescues, some that went well, some that didn't uh, go so well. And looking around to see where there was support, what you're meant to do, who you can turn to, how you can prevent this there just seemed to be a lack of it in the industry. So taking my interest and my history of psychology, I did a mental health first aid course. A fellow chef had told me about it and I did it whilst I was off the boat during COVID. I absolutely loved the course. While I was going through it, I was like, this is dynamic. It's actionable. It's built around an acronym, much like we do in physical first aid. And throughout every single session, I kept thinking to myself, this is what we need in yachting. This is what yachting needs. And before the ink was even dry on my certificate, I was signing up to be an instructor, became an instructor, and then decided to create a company that brings mental health first aid training to yachting. And from your experience, what are the unique mental health challenges that crew members face when at sea? I mean, definitely isolation. Before COVID kind of spread around the world, a lot of people would never have understood what it feels like to be locked down, stuck on a boat, unable to go back home at the kind of wills and mercy of someone else's schedule or the boat schedule or the owner's needs. That I find can be really, really challenging, especially if you're on a boat that you are not feeling so good on. Maybe you haven't kind of vibed with the people, they're not your tribe, or if there's any kind of incidents of bullying, harassment, or discrimination, it can get, a boat can get really small, really fast. And I found myself thinking about the person that is sitting in their crew mess, avoiding crew meals, not knowing where to talk or who to talk to or not knowing where to get advice. And I wanted to create a support system, not just the training, which I hope is preventative and increases people's you know, resilience and strength in hard times, um, but also a support network afterwards so people know where to go. And if there's an emergency crisis, they know who to call and how to get that person help or themselves help. Yeah. Um, Emma, you and I have talked about this before in relation to yachting, but I also wonder if there's, it's worth reflecting on the issue of shame when it comes to having mental health problems within yachting. Because I think perhaps one of the unique things about yachting and super yachts versus other maritime or yeah. other environments is this idea that you're meant to be having the most fantastic time. You know, you reflected on it at the beginning. You mentioned about champagne and wonderful pictures on Instagram, right? So the idea that you'd even be complaining or having mental health problems, I feel like there might be an extra element of shame that comes along with that. So I just wondered if you had any sort of comments on that about yachting specifically. 
Yeah, I think I think definitely there is an element. I think it can come in a couple of different forms. I think there is the overall kind of this is amazing, this industry is amazing, you should be lucky to be a part of it. And yeah, for the most part you're absolutely right. It is incredible. The people are incredible. But it's still life and we know we cannot turn life off. We can't stop people breaking up with us, we can't stop people dying, we can't stop people from harassing us or bullying us. So I think there's two things that we need to be aware of is that a person that's experiencing mental health issues or sliding kind of from the top half where they've got, you know, uh, robust mental health into maybe a uh, poorer mental health, there might be some self-stigmatizing shame there. I don't deserve to talk about this. I should be grateful. I need the money. I don't want to make a fuss. What if this goes on my record? So we've got that that we need to address, acknowledge and then start to tackle. And then we yeah. have the overall general understanding of your you should be really grateful to be on this boat and i mean i think where it becomes complicated is because we're selling a lifestyle yachting is not just a job it's not just a holiday it's a whole lifestyle you know what other work would you be going to breakfast with your boss working all day seeing your boss in his uh, vilbrequins at the end of the day getting drunk being hung over the next day it's a really complicated mix and i think whatever we expect from other industries we need to be really unique thinking about yachting so are there specific tactics and specific things that you teach people through this mental health first aid because i know that the thing about mental health and when we talk about it is it can be a bit woolly is not the right word but it can feel a bit vague so how specific do you get on the course so much like the physical first aid that we all have to do in order to get your STCW it's a model built around an acronym Dr ABC well the same can be done for mental health it was actually created by a mental health professor and a red cross nurse and uh, the red cross nurse saw how that kind of acronym and model was really effective in the field when people were responding to emergency situations so they worked together to create this same model around an acronym an action based model that gives you the confidence to go into a situation especially in a crisis situation so after 2 days you know with your physical first aid you're not a doctor you're not a paramedic but you could help someone in a crisis and you could get them to safety or you could provide comfort until help arrives it's the same with mental health first of all the best um is preventative so preventing um conflicts preventing issues talking about language um communication making sure that that's all kind of understood and then in an emergency crisis working with the model so whether that's um dealing with someone that you suspect or you spotted the signs and symptoms of substance misuse uh, anxiety depression suicidal ideation um eating disorders within that 2 day first aid we teach you how to spot the most common signs and symptoms and then how to start helping that person around an action plan and if it is a crisis situation where to go who to call in an emergency and what's available globally and worldwide Yeah cuz I think one one point that's worth touching upon maybe is couldn't this all get very overwhelming for crew if you're trying to teach them all this mental health first aid and they think oh crikey am I now going to be responsible for someone overdosing or having this kind of suicidal ideation it's finding that balance isn't it I guess 
It is definitely. I mean, it depends. The first thing you have to do when you, before you even get on a boat is get your STCW. So, you know, you are jumping into off boards, into water, fully clothed, learning about sea survival, getting into lifeboats. You're learning about first aid, what to do if someone has a horrific cat- catastrophic injury or is bleeding out and firefighting, you know, in the middle of the ocean. We all know there is a point at which we've left Gibraltar before we can get to Antigua, where we all know that we have to be self-sufficient. No firefighters are coming down and repelling down buildings. We have to look after ourselves. And I think at that point, you know, we're not asking people to then do a whole two-day extra of mental health. We'd ask for people to do a half-day, an awareness, which is more about increasing their own understanding of mental health and mostly um, dealing, kind of looking after themselves and becoming as resilient and applying some strategic self-care. At that point, you know, I think people doing the STCW, that's a really good filtering system. A lot of people might look at that and think that's overwhelming. I would never be able to do that. And they will tap out. And that's absolutely fine. There's no judgment there. But a lot of people, myself included, looks at that. And I saw it as like having little secret superpowers. I now know how to fight fires. I know how to protect people. I know how to keep people alive. If I have to do them, absolutely, you know, I would never want that. I'd much prefer a firefighter to come banging down the door and take the the galley fire out or a, a doctor to be on the scene. But I do have the knowledge inside me. And I know that all of the people I'm going to see with have that same knowledge. We've got to look after ourselves. So I wouldn't say that it's overwhelming for people that are wanting to go to sea, putting all of their belongings into a 20 liter duffel bag and booking a ticket, a one way ticket onto a boat. I think we're pretty hardy. And I think more information, more understanding is going to be helpful in the long run. Before we get into Seize the Mind, you know, I want to ask you a larger question about the industry itself. You know, why do you think that there's been a vacuum regarding mental health awareness, you know, for so long, and now it's becoming such a topic, right? There's a bunch of people trying to work on mental health. And obviously, that conversation is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer the whole industry since COVID. I think there has been a rise in awareness. I think people are being more honest. People have got to talk about what they were experiencing during COVID. Languages and communication around mental health started to change. We started to check in with each other a lot more. In yachting, I think there is maybe a reticence to talk about this because people are worried that they're going to create another generation of snowflakes or that they're going to inherit a whole load of problems when actually it's the opposite that's true. You know, if I asked you to go and do a marathon tomorrow, would you be able to run 26 miles off the bat? Not many. It depends on the reward at the end. (laughs) I mean, you would, you'd have, you know, we've all got the same 24 hours in a day. If you had done no training, if you had done nothing, you'd put your shoes on and you would walk, crawl or run some of that 26 miles. You'd do it. You would have to do it. But if you'd done training, if we'd started six months with, you know, doing five Ks a a week and then went increasing it to seven, increasing it to 10, we have that expectation on our bodies. We know that we can't just go into a CrossFit class and go onto the leaderboard. We can't just enter an ultra marathon race and smash it. We could do it. It's just going to be a lot harder. And it's the same with mental health. Start thinking about health, mental health as one facet of all of the different healths we have. We have physical health, which we have a comfortable relationship talking about, and we're okay talking about that. But we also have mental health, social health, 
financial health, and even people are now talking about digital health. And I think with the rise of social media, with people talking, with companies like myself kind of getting into the industry, what we want to do is not be at the end when that person has crashed or burnt out. What we want to be doing is putting in that training, getting that person up and putting their shoes on at 6am and doing 5Ks three times a week, 10Ks the next week. So when they do go into an emergency situation, they know what to do, how to do it. And if they don't, don't know what to do, they know who to call. That to me is where mental health first aid comes in. So we can occupy the preventative aspects at the beginning, but we can also be there as a crisis help and uh, resource uh, line at the end. So Seize the Mind, can you tell us how it started? You know, uh, what was it like trying to get this business going? You know, kind of where you're at right now and what your approaches are? Um, well, yeah. starting a business, I've never done it before. So it was all brand new for me. I had no training, no understanding. I just had an idea and I had a lot of passion. So it's been slow and incremental, but I'm okay with that. I want to build a product that is, you know, well known and respected. A lot of conversations happened and it was the lack of answers to those questions that were coming up in conversations with yachties, ex-yachties, current yachties that formed the creation of Seize the Mind. Like I said, I created it with another head chef. Her name is Mel White. She'd been on yachts um, like me, sailing yachts, had an amazing experience. She's written a book about it, but she'd also had the really crappy parts of yachting and the industry. And with me doing the mental health first aid course and seeing how it ran in London and how applicable it was to yachting, I then decided, I mean, it starts with a website and a logo. It literally, I just started asking really talented friends to help me out. It started with a logo. It started with an idea, came up with a manifesto. I think I came up with the manifesto first so I could get an understanding what was going to be under, what the coverage, what the umbrella coverage would be like for mental health. And once the manifesto was written, it was just about taking each day one at a time. I was still working on yachts. I was on rotation. So I'd be on the boat for two months, working on the company for two months. And I did that for a couple of years. Lots of 3 a.m., 5 a.m. calls while I was in America, making sure that I was getting to all the events that I needed to in Europe. So just time, dedication, relying on good people and yeah, spreading the word and getting the, the training out there. Now that I've done a few hundred trainings and the word is starting to spread itself, the reputation is out there and um, that's doing a lot of the work for me. So yeah, it's all been a wild but brilliant journey. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've faced when kind of getting this company up and running? I think some of the challenges, while I have a lot of support and a lot of people saying this is amazing, it should be mandatory, all crews should have to do this training, and we all agree, it's obviously going to be hard to get mandated change. We do have the SCCW revision has said that they will be taking on mental health and it will be part of the next SCCW revision. So that's a massive win for the industry, but that might take some time. So in the meantime, we're trying to get as many people trained as possible. I think that's been quite hard. Obviously, we are time poor in yachting. So trying to pin people down for a two-day course has been a little bit tricky. So I've learned to adapt, break the course down, maybe run it on consecutive days. And then the third thing that I found quite tricky is 
just the resistance to empowering people. So the words that consistently come up when people have done this training is, it's amazing, I feel so empowered, I feel like I know what I can do, and this should be mandatory. That's from people who have done the course. People who haven't done the course, that have just heard about it, the, the main uh, feedback I'm getting is, do we really need this? Is this going to make more problems for us on boats? And quite obsessingly, one person says, do we really want to empower crew? Isn't that going to make our lives harder? So even tackling that has been unexpected, but I'm not, I'm a chef. I'm a female chef on a super yacht. I'm used to challenges. In fact, now trying to figure out a way to not exclude these people, but take their concerns and answer them and just prove through the training and through the the new generation of yachties that are empowered that this training is important and it does make a difference. Obviously, when, you know, we talk about seize the mind, it, you know, encompasses crew and whatnot, but how does leadership on board foster into this mental health discussion? Well, I think one of the key things you need for good leadership is good communication. You know, you could be an amazing captain, amazing chef, but if you're not communicating that or if the crew aren't understanding you or if you're not speaking literally the same language, sometimes there can be miscommunications, there can be slights, there can be cultural slights that come in and on a boat floating kind of plank of wood in the middle of the sea, those small little things can grow exponentially. So I think for a leader, being able to have a duty of care, being able to recognize, you know, when you become a chief, unfortunately, this is only for the officer's role and uh, chief engineer's role. If you become a chief stew, you have no requirements for any human elements or leadership management, which I also think is um, something that needs to be addressed. Um, because chief stews have, you know, lots of teams. And with the amount of 100 plus yachts coming out of shipyards, it's going to become more and more professional, the whole industry. I also think it's important for a leader to kind of lead by example, showing that they have an understanding of mental health as much as they do of firefighting, sea survival. They've done their advanced firefighting, advanced medical when they become chiefs. I think that's important. But I also think, you know, from a managerial position, I know there are courses out there, but how do you train to become a captain? Like there's, there seems like you, you've gone from, you know, working your way up through the, the deck officer role, learning a bit more, but who's teaching you how to balance 20, 30, 40 million a year budgets? Who's teaching you how to navigate uh, different crew dynamics or what to do? Like I said, as industry becomes more professional and we get more like 100 meter boats with systems in place, we'll start to see a real shift in the industry. And I hope that mental health is going to be one of those things that's picked up on and adopted throughout. Ahoy investors! Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape, the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. We've certainly heard a lot of that kind of, you know, as the super yacht industry becomes more mature, 
because yeah. I mean, the reality is the super yacht industry is a fairly young industry. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more people coming in with a business focus and a lot more structure from other industries. Obviously, with the nature of what you do, yeah. what advice would you give crew members who might be struggling with mental health but are hesitant to speak up? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is definitely do speak up. If you don't feel comfortable talking to anyone on board, there's lots of resources out there. There are lots of confidential, free, 24-hour, multilingual resources and helplines out there. I would urge you to not think that it's your fault or you're to blame. That's something that your mendacious brain is telling you, or at least my mendacious brain told me when I was quite sick on boats. Um, reach out, let people know how you're doing. Be honest and open and authentic in your communication about what's going on. And yeah, if you can try to sort it out yourself, you know, if it's more of a kind of an illness, like you're feeling poor in terms of mental health, the same way as if you rolled your ankle, it might just mean that you need a bit of support, a bit of extra love and care and communication and touching home with people that you love or professional help like therapy to get you through this situation. If it starts sliding more into illness, you know, rolled ankle versus a broken ankle, we've got the same in mental health. You'll have poor mental health that you can still stay on board, do your job. You might just need a bit of support versus something that might get you off that boat for a good six months. Early intervention is key. Being honest and open, knowing where to go and who to, to talk to is also key. And if you don't know, then obviously we can always point you in the right direction. But there's lots of resources that are popping up now, uh, really great resources like iSwan's helpline. So just kind of inform yourself and make sure you've got those numbers in your phone. So if it is an emergency or for you or someone else, you at least know as much as you can to help that person or yourself. I think it's important as well to maybe reflect upon what you mentioned before about cultural differences and differing experiences because the conversation that we've been trying to make sure doesn't get sidelined is the intersectional nature of all of these issues. Obviously, one person's experience of mental health will be very different based on their kind of culture, race, background, all the rest of it. So how important is that aspect when it comes to mental health support within yachting? I mean, it's very important. We do an exercise called the frame of reference that actually kind of highlights how different we are and how unique we are and how everyone has got their own pair of glasses. And that will be to do with where you grew up, uh, how you grew up. Did you grow up in a warm, safe, embryonic home where dinner was always on the table and conversations and debates were allowed? Or did you grow up in a very hostile, spiky home where doors were slammed, there might be an alcoholism, abandonments, uh, lots of scary things going on. Things like that make a huge difference to A, your mental health and B, how you kind of perceive events around you. We're all completely wild and brilliant and unique. And we bring that onto boats. What we want to be able to do, obviously, it's impossible. We're dealing with humans is get the strongest, fittest, most healthy physically and mentally onto a boat and all yeah. work together. But that's just not how life works. It's impossible to do that. So recognizing that someone might have differences to you or might have had a different experience to you or might be triggered by something. I think all of this comes down to communication, really good, honest communication. I found that when I'm talking honestly and openly about my experiences with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, uh, substance misuse, suicide, it can sound quite a lot to people, but hopefully I do it. And I, I've had enough distance from it that I kind of have a different tone. I'm able to own the story and it's not just kind of, you know, a really 
bleak, depressing story. There's lots of kind of ups and downs in the story. And I, I'm very self-deprecating when I tell the story, but I know for a fact, and I've had it happen so many times when people hear me talking openly and honestly about it, and a bit like Russell Brand kind of does, is it then opens the door. They then know that you're a safe person to have a conversation with. And the amount of times people haven't said anything to me in the moment, but they've come up to me in the galley or they've come up to me at a party and they said, you know that thing you were talking about before? And I know you were making a joke about it, but actually I think something like that has happened to me or I'm wor worried about something. And that then gives you the opportunity to have a real authentic conversation and start to kind of, you know, work through a system of listening actively, giving information, giving practical support, giving emotional support, and even encouraging that person towards professional care if you think they need it. Well, I'd certainly want to talk about women in the industry. What specific kind of issues they they deal with within like the mental health world, especially on super yachts, right? So could you just enlighten us a little bit on that? Again, I can't speak for all women, but um, I know that what comes up a lot um, for females is there's a couple of issues. My big issue is that most females leave the industry, you know, between 30s and 40s. Either they get pregnant and it's a one-way door out of yachting or they are just over it. They kind of want to live in the nice south of France uh, chateau that they've got with their captain husband. Or like me, I got to 41 and I just didn't want to wear escort and trainers anymore. I looked like I was a goal defense, like I was going to play netball instead of going to work. And so that kind of age restriction for females stops a multi-generational conversation going on. We know that when you've got lots of people represented, lots of representation for age, cultures, nationalities, you get a better more cohesive working uh, society on a boat in a crew mess, that microcosm of society in, that you find in a crew mess. And when you've lost that, that top half of females having conversations, talking about boundaries, you've got a real vacuum of expertise and uh, experience. So that to me seems a little bit bottom heavy in terms of female roles. And then obviously we're physically less strong when it comes to cabins. I've had twice i've had people trying to get into my cabin i didn't have a lock on my cabin and both times no cabin lock they were they came home steaming drunk whether they wanted just mates to get up and drink with them or whether there was something a bit more sinister to their intentions they kept in this is two separate individual circumstances but each time they would come into my door open the door try and get me out of bed or try and get into bed with me you feel incredibly vulnerable in that moment like incredibly vulnerable i'm smaller i'm weaker what do i do in this situation also that person was above me there was a power dynamic that needed to be considered would i lose my job they were mates with the captain would the captain then start to kind of question my role um because as a female chef as a crew chef i felt way more replaceable than the the person that was coming into my cabin each time and it was resolved by the fourth or fifth time um they had come into my cabin i just i, I had nothing else i could do i just screamed and screamed and screamed as loud as i could a chief engineer heard me screaming, came, got the person out of the cabin. They were too drunk to even have a conversation. And the 
chief engineer put me into the guest cabin where I could lock it from the inside. And they made sure that I was safe. Um, thank God for them. They were incredible in that moment. And then once the door was locked, uh, you know, your heart is still pounding. You've gone through a massive adrenaline spike. You know, I was in fight or flight mode while that person was in my cabin three or four times. Um, and I couldn't get to sleep. I couldn't rest. And I could hear them trying to get into the door. So even when they had been told off, even when they knew the door was locked, I could hear them kind of scratching at the door. So there went my sleep. There went my rest and feeling of safety. So I think for females, the feeling of safety is always something that we need to be aware of and cognizant of and make sure that everyone, female, male, old, young, feels safe in their cabin, no matter what. And that's something we can do a huge amount for. So do you have, as we're sort of approaching a vague a vague conclusion somewhere, not that it can be brought down into bite-sized things, but do you have any little tips or advice of things you've learned that help kind of safeguard your mental health? Are there things that you do personally that you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think for a long time, I didn't know anything about mental health or self-care. I knew some things made me feel better and other things made me feel worse. In the depths of more of the first one and less of the, more of the good ones and less of the bad ones. Well, in my 20s, I'd had it reversed, I think. So when I was in the depths of my depression as a chef, I was like, oh, maybe this is food based. I can kind of fix depression with food. And I remember Googling foods that make you happy and it, walnuts came up. I think just because they looked like a brain. I was like a bag of walnuts a day does not get rid of depression but all of the coping mechanisms that I had in place were pretty unhealthy you know they got me through the day they got me out of my brain literally by drinking by taking drugs by sleeping with inappropriate people or getting so blackout drunk that I kind of just didn't worry about my problems that night but then I had new problems the next day like where is my handbag and do I have to apologize to anyone and oh my god what what are people talking about me um so I think from starting at basics figuring out that sleep was essential I needed good sleep and I had to be kind of um quite protective over my my rest time I figured out that I'm not very good at meditating. I wanted to be able to sit on a lotus leaf for an hour like a Buddha and be amazing. I'm crap at that, but I'm good at running and I'm good at listening to podcasts that intrigue me and educate me. Much like you said at the beginning, Meryl, I would have podcasts playing in the background that kept me educated and kept me having the conversations that maybe I felt I wasn't having on the boat. And it was just about getting really strategic with my self-care, eating good food, exercising daily, trying to do something that connected or communicated with people, whether that was touching base or just going up onto the heli deck, no phones allowed, but just enjoying the moment and chatting to people around me. It really is the simple stuff. And when I ask people what makes them feel better versus what makes them feel bad in my courses, what makes them feel bad is always, you know, spending money, uh, taking drugs, uh, getting drunk. What makes people feel good sea swims, walking in nature, playing with a dog, hanging out with my family, doing a run, all of which is free and all of which can be done on a boat. You just have to get strategic about it. So in the same way as I have a kind of exercise regime for my body, I want to be able to, you know, do X amount of exercise or X amount of hours a, a week. I do the same for my mind. And I found that that has now balanced. And I don't want to drink as much and I don't want to misbehave as much. And I think it's starting to kind of reverse itself now. So that feels pretty good. Yeah, I would just um, say from a sort of personal point of view, what I found with my own sort of mental health is it is also quite important to not get too regimented and too strict with if I do X amount, then it will also 
kind of fix it because i think if you have a certain kind of brain you can get into the mentality of oh but if i do provide this amount of space for my exercise and this amount of space for myself i think sometimes it's also worth trying to be self-compassionate and saying you know what i really messed up today i didn't do any of the things i was meant to do and i think it's possibly quite mentally healthy to also be able to accept that um and not set yourself up for a fall i think it's it's a balancing act isn't it really yeah i mean you don't want to use anything more to self-flagellate yourself like i didn't run i'm um, useless we've kind of skipped a whole part you said what can people do on boats i mean previous to that there was a whole load of professional therapy. I've seen multiple therapists who have given me tools, who have given me explanations for my difficulties. That was a huge part of my journey that hasn't really been explained. So for me, knowing how incredible therapy was, whether you decide to go with the traditional talking therapies or whether you want something more action-based that's uh, like cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, I think that's, that is potentially an important step to just getting you back to health. And once you're healthy and once you're feeling that like you can, can be on the boat or you can do your duties, that's when the, the self-care kicks in. That's when you can start thinking about routines and looking after yourself. I mean, I still make mistakes now. I still love a glass of wine, but now it's not a secret bottle in the cabin. It's like, right, I'm opening up a bottle of wine and I'm inviting someone over to drink with me. So I'm connecting and communicating, not just sculling wine by myself. But it's, yeah, it's always a progress. And you've just got to be, you've got to be more kind to yourself than you have been if you're feeling kind of in a bad mental state. Yeah, I think that caveat, that mention of therapy is really important because I would definitely not advocate the step of, oh, you're having a really tough time, but, you know, just a bit of yoga. You'll be all right. It's about about taking it seriously and and taking those steps. And I think your overall perspective that it is as important and should be, you know, treated as seriously as physical health is just so important to highlight, isn't it? Because you wouldn't say that to someone who's been diagnosed with a physical condition, you know, oh, just, you know, sit tight and it'll be okay. Think it away. Exactly. But we have, like I said before, we have a comfortable relationship with our physical health. You know, we've grown up knowing about it. We can go to hospitals. We can talk to people that have had injuries or accidents or traumas. We can go to hospital with grapes and chat to them. We're not so comfortable when it comes to mental health. We're less likely to reach out and text someone when they've had a a mental health incident than we are if we've heard they've had an accident or they've rolled their ankle or they came off their bike. And until we get that level of understanding and comfort with mental health, it's always going to be tricky. So yes, within health, there is huge amounts of variation. Sometimes an aspirin and a bit of rest will work. Sometimes you need actual intervention. And it's the same for physical health and mental health. It's about knowing the difference and about not having any shame or stigma, asking for help when you do recognize that you need that extra care. What resources would you point people towards then as we begin to wrap up the podcast? Um, There are lots of resources. So I would obviously always try and speak to someone within your management team. Management companies are starting to understand more and more about mental health. Um, Speak to them in a confidential manner. Find out what they can be told, who's going to know what. You know, as you get on a boat, your DPA, that's new. That's, well, it's not new. It's new to yachting. Um, It wasn't when I was around. It is now in the last 10 years. So that's an amazing resource to always um, hit. For confidentiality, you have uh, 
phone lines like IceOne, and I know some of the MHSS, they have also launched a 24-hour hotline. And I know some of the telemedicine hotlines have also started including mental health um, conversations. So MSOS, MedAir, the kind of most common ones come to mind. So I think what is best to do is when you get onto a boat or if you start with a new management company, find out what their policy, if they have a policy around mental health, what it is, what it includes, the same for insurance. Some insurance companies will have better policies and understanding than others. Find out how it all works and then know what you can turn to or what you can point someone in the direction. But, you know, seize the mind, Ice One and the Samaritans would be my go-to for anyone kind of in an emergency situation or looking to find help. So my final question here for this interview, and you had mentioned it earlier and you know, I had kind of run it through my mind as well, even before we got into this interview. But the yeah. idea of that a missing generation within women in the yachting industry because they leave, right? So how do we change that, right? Because that has massive impacts. If there's no role models, if there's no one to really look up to and ask questions and like gather insights and build upon that, how do we change that? I wish I had the answer. I don't know. I mean, I know that when it comes to anything, people of color, people on the LGBTIQ spectrum, we don't have much representation in yachting. So I think representation counts. I think knowing that it's a safe environment to come, whether you're a slightly older female that's only entering into yachting at 35 or a person of color, you want to know that you're going to fit in and that you're going to be welcome. Yeah, it's going to be a hard job. Yeah, you're going to start at the bottom. We all did. But as long as there's representation and I think, you know, a lot can be said for the program below deck but if it starts to show varying levels of people and global audiences are watching that and thinking Do you know what i've seen past all the craziness and the crew antics and the drunkenness and the like the charter guests being all extra and i still want to go into yachting and i see someone who looks like me or speaks like me or acts like me then potentially that's going to be something that we can harness and encourage people to come into yachting but for how do we stop hemorrhaging women over 35, 40? Yeah, I think I think lots more minds than mine need to kind of get together and figure out how we can make it more attractive and more sustainable career for women. Or get more people, more women on the kind of the deck route kind of career path. You know, captains can go until 60, 65. Not many chief stews do, not many chefs do. We're kind of on our feet all the day. We're running teams. So maybe it's even just kind of redefining what our female roles on boats and making sure that we have open transparency and a lot more inclusion and diversity there. So, Emma, where can people find you, read more about what you're doing, take your program? Um, well, obviously, I have a website. It is uh, www.seizethemind.co.uk. We're also on Instagram at Seize the Mind. We have all of our different programs available there, as well as all of our course dates. And we're starting to have more of a presence at boat shows. So if anyone is going to the, well, I'm not sure when this is going out, but if it goes out before the Monaco Yacht Show, I will be at the Monaco Yacht Show with Captain Kelly Gordon, and I'll also be at the Pearls of um, Wisdom event. So yeah, just keep a lookout on social media for where we are, where you can meet us, and then any kind of interest in the course, getting it for yourself or for your boat, obviously check us out online. Awesome. Well, it was great talking to you, Emma. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode. And be sure to like, share and subscribe to ShipShape.pro. Pro, 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 pro.